Um, last week we broke down Exodus into five sections, uh, and the, we dealt with the first. Well, we didn't really deal with the whole first section last week. Uh, we tried to deal with a few things out of the first section last week, um, but. It, it roughly goes from chapters 1 to the middle of 5, uh, or 1 through 5, have to do with Israel's need for a deliverer and God responding to that need. God hearing the cry of Israel and raising up then Moses. Uh, we didn't have, I think I may come back at some point and talk about the process Moses went through um, in, in God preparing him to be the deliverer of his people. God's not done with Moses, by the way, when he sends him to deliver his people. Uh, we get a glimpse in, in the book of Numbers uh, of the further processing that Moses had to undergo. So we'll probably talk about that once we get there into Numbers. Uh, chapters 5 through 15 form the main, the, the, what we usually think of as the story of Exodus, which is the, God's, the, the, the ten plagues and the deliverance from Egypt, uh, and then crossing the Red Sea and, and ending up at Sinai and all the way to Sinai. Then at Sinai, um, the third section, the third section is, or no, on the way to Sinai, uh, I, I spelled out as the third section, which is God revealing his uh, provision for his people, his provision on that journey. The fourth section is God revealing his principles that would be 19 through 24, and that's the, the, the covenant at Sinai and the, the Ten Commandments and the law gets laid down. And then finally, God's revelation of his presence, which is the plans for the tabernacle, his desire to come and dwell in the midst of his people. And uh, right in the middle of that, that's chapter 25 through 40, but right in the middle of it in 32 uh, is, the, is the episode of the golden calf where he comes down with the plans and it's, everything has gone awry. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a, an already a breach of the covenant. And they have to reestablish relationship and then go on to build the plans. And then Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord falling on the tabernacle of Moses. And then we get uh, the whole book of Leviticus, which is additional laws for their life together. But there they are at the foot of Sinai. And that's where they are for, uh, for a, another chunk of the, the Pentateuch. So tonight we're going to talk about um, Yahweh versus Pharaoh and the, the plagues, but it's not just the plagues. I mean, the plagues themselves are interesting uh, to look at. Um, structurally, they're interesting. They're sort of three cycles of uh, plagues. They're kind of in a group of three threes, um, plagues one through three, four through six, seven through nine, form kind of three cycles, and you can see sort of the way that the story is told and narrated um, I don't want to get into a lot of that tonight. Um, I, I want to set the scene for the plagues. And um, so I want, to, I want to start in chapter 5. And just read some of that. Now chapter 5, Moses has come to the people for the first time. And he said, hey, I'm here to deliver you. And they receive him pretty well up front. And then uh, Pharaoh... They ask Pharaoh to let them go, <laughs> and he says, and he kind of he kind of freaks out on them, and then he he begins to to ratchet up the oppression, and he takes away their straw, um, and they're in their building bricks, and 
So Pharaoh says this in chapter 5. I'll just start in the beginning of chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. <laughs> Get back to your burdens. But I, the thing I want to focus on tonight is this thing that Pharaoh says, let my people go that they may hold, I mean, I'm sorry, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Let's pray real quick for the, for the uh, reading of the word. Father, open our eyes to this passage of uh, your word. Uh, Lord, speak to us the thing we need to hear tonight. Lord, there are many things we can glean from your word, and we will spend our lives uh, studying it, giving ourselves to, to it, and, and allowing it to shape us. But Lord, tonight you have something for us, and we want to open our hearts to that, and ask that you would come and speak to each of us in the way that you need to. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pharaoh has said what God predicted he would say, or what Moses predicted he would say, when God told Moses to go, he says, well, what if they ask me, who sent you? And God gives Moses a name to use, and it's the name I am. It's Yahweh. It's all caps Lord, L-O-R-D. And it is the personal name of God. And God's concern from this point on, as he's coming in to rescue his people, is not just to rescue his people. All right? He hasn't been sort of off doing his thing and now it's gotten really bad, so he needs to go help them out a little bit. God has chosen this point in history to reveal to his people and to the world who he is. He has allowed his people to be fruitful and multiply, to, be, to, be, to go into captivity in Egypt. He has allowed all of that to happen. He has allowed this to begin to crystallize so that we sitting here today, would know who God is. All right? So it's not just, the Exodus is not just God feeling bad and helping people out who are in a really bad way. God wants to reveal himself to his people and to the world in this way, as a deliverer, okay? As Yahweh, as he who is. And so the, the, the ten plagues are not just... The, the epic proportions of the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, we say this is, you know, this is Old Testament level uh, plagues or famine or whatever. It's not just really bad plagues. All right, God has chosen, he's being, he's being very specific and, and methodical in the way that he's revealing himself to the world, to his people and, and to Egypt. And the way he's doing this, the plagues are part of the way that he's revealing himself. The plagues are called signs. Signs. 
Uh, They're not mere miracles or just kind of random demonstrations of his immeasurable power, right? God's not just flexing his omnipotence here, okay? He is choosing very specific ways. He's giving signs to his people and to Pharaoh. And what is a sign? It's something, if you're driving to Lexington, you see a sign that says Lexington, 25 miles, it's a sign. You're, that's not the destination, right? The point is not the sign. You don't stop at the sign and go, Lexington. No, it's a sign that says it's indicating something, right? Even when you get to the city limits, you don't stop at the sign that says, welcome to Lexington. No, you have a destination. And so every sign is pointing to something beyond itself. And so let me just read this sequence of scriptures to show you how I think this is the driving Uh, force behind this passage in the ten plagues. Uh, Exodus 6-7. I'm just going to kind of run through these real quick to give you an idea. 6-7, starting 6-6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's not interested in helping them because it happens to have gotten bad. God always wanted his people to know him as deliverer. I am the Lord who brought you out. Okay, And so as God is is going about establishing relationship with his people, he wants everyone to know that he is going to be the one that brings them out. Let me just keep going here. Also, I'm going to run out of time. 7.5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. 7.17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord, for I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. 8.10. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. This is when Pharaoh has said, hey, take these frogs away from us. And he says, all right, tell me when. He says, do it tomorrow. (laughs) And he says, all right, I will, I will ask the Lord to take the frogs away. Why? So that you will know who he is. Okay, Pharaoh had said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And Yahweh is interested in answering that question for Pharaoh in the sight of his people. It's an awesome thing. It's almost like God saying, I thought you'd never ask. Now let me show you who I am. 822. But on that day I will set apart, this is during the plague of flies, uh, on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. 9.14 For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 929. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease 
and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And then 10.2. And there's more of these. I just picked out the ones I really liked. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son. Let me start in 10.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. I'm doing these things. Why? So that you can know something. And that seems simple. But God chose to do this so that we would know something. So the way I think we need to read this is to try and figure out what God wants us to know. (laughs) If this thing that God wants us to know is so great that he causes all of these signs to come and wonders to come to pass so that we would know them, so that his people would know them, so that Egypt would know them, so that all the earth would know them, we should probably ask ourselves probably more than any other question in this whole passage, what does God want us to know about him? Right? And so that's what I really want to talk about. Um, so these signs are pointing to God himself. And we, ask to say, we have to ask, what is God telling the Egyptians? What is he telling his people? What's he telling us about what he wants us to know? So that we would know that he is the Lord. Um, this, these signs are, are not even the whole part of it. Because what God is doing is part of a total... He, he is beginning a total reorientation of his people's view of reality. They are in bondage in Egypt. And actually, they, they are very Egyptian, culturally. They become... They, their, their way of life is Egyptian. Right? They, they, they've really become embedded in that place. So not only are they in bondage... But they also, they don't know who they are, right? They are more Egyptian than Israelite at this point. They are more Egyptian than sons of Abraham at this point. And God's saying, enough, okay? So these signs are a part of this this absolute uh, reorientation of a view of reality. Their view of reality is that, yeah, God's somewhere... And we have these fathers who served him. But right now, our world is Egypt. Our Lord, our master, is Pharaoh. And we basically live unto him. Now, they didn't like it, right? They weren't, you know, pleased with it. But that was the reality for them. And so when Moses shows up and says, God wants to draw you out. This is back in chapter 5. Then Pharaoh says, no, I don't know the Lord. Get back to your burdens. Then the people, they start to, they, it, um, they start to despair. Their spirits break. Right? They've just been told that, del- that deliverance is at hand. And life got even harder because Pharaoh didn't like that news. And so an interesting verse in chapter 5, verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. They're crying out to Pharaoh. Why do you treat us like this? Right? Their cry is misdirected. They're living within this realm. They can't get outside of it. God has come to break through, burst through that 
that sealed off system where Pharaoh is Lord and to say, no, <laughs> Pharaoh, Pharaoh has little to do with what I'm about. So what did the sign show us? Um, a number of things. I, I want to start with probably the most obvious one is that they show us God's display of his supremacy over the deities of Egypt. Right. Um, and this is an important thing. This is this is one of the ways the Old Testament, I think, can be extremely insightful to us if we are looking at it right, if we're looking at it correctly. When God identifies himself as Yahweh, and when he identifies himself as God, that's a radical theological statement, and that's one that, that is earth-shattering. That's like saying to someone, you know, the, earth doesn't, the sun doesn't really go around the earth. The earth goes around the sun. It's, it's, it's at that level, maybe even greater than that. It's an entirely new way of viewing reality. That this God is the God. All right? Because the Egyptians had this whole pantheon of deities really based in a relationship that they had with nature. All right? Because where did the plagues go? The Nile. All right? The Nile, Egypt is called the gift of the Nile. Right? Basically, the Nile gave birth to the civilization known as Egypt. Or, Kate, is this an accurate statement historically? Okay. The Nile basically gave birth to Egypt, all right? And that's the first place God goes. He says, the Nile gives you life. I am Yahweh. Now, boom, the Nile gives you death. I am supreme. The Nile is not your giver of life. I am the one who gives life. He goes after natural things, right? He brings these frogs, right? The Egyptians had a frog god. Um, he goes after plants. He goes after livestock. He goes after the sun, right? Darkness. It's Ra. He goes after the sun itself. Not even the sun, that all-powerful heavenly being. Not even the sun is more powerful than me. Why? Because I'm, I created the sun, and this goes back to some of the things we talked about in Genesis, where the idea of God as creator is a huge concept. That there is a God who exists outside of the created order and called it into being. So it shows God's supremacy over the Egyptian deities. But it also, in this whole exchange between Yahweh versus Pharaoh, it's showing God's agenda for his people. Right? He says, let my people go because I feel sorry for them. No, he says, let my people go so they can serve me. Right? Who have they been serving? Pharaoh. And God's, Yahweh comes on the scene and he says, no, these are my people. I want them to serve me. Not in Egypt, in a place where I show them. Not in the way that you serve your gods, but in the way that I'm going to reveal to them. All right? He says, this is what I, this is what I want. So in these signs, he's pointing to that. So who he is, what his desires are. He's pointing out that he sees a difference between his people and Egypt. That there is a difference. 
that I'm not just an another God. And the Israelites aren't just another people. They are Yahweh's people. Okay, and so when he brings these plagues, one of the things he does, says he makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. You're going to know where, is, where, the, where my people are because the plague is going to pass over them. There's going to be a line between Egypt and Israel. So God is basically saying, my way is different than your way, Pharaoh. I'm not, I, I'm not going to work in your system. I have my own complete system. And so this is a moment in time where God is revealing things that he's been sort of revealing all along, but now he is going worldwide. I mean, Egypt is the superpower of the world at this time, and he's going straight for Pharaoh himself, the, the most powerful man in the world. And he's making himself known in these ways. I am supreme. I am superior. I have power over these things. I have an agenda. I have a plan. And, there is, and my way is not your way. I am different than you. And it's interesting that God, he says, I didn't reveal myself in this way to the patriarchs. And people debate whether, you know, because the, the name Yahweh does appear in, this, in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they debate what, what the reason there is. But I think essentially what God is saying is, you've known me in one way. It's time to know me. It's time to take the next step. It's time to have the next lesson in who I am, right? I called Abraham to myself. I revealed some things about myself to him. I revealed, I blessed him. I walked with him. I revealed my heart to him. Now it's time to up the ante. Now the world needs to know, particularly the most mighty nation in the world needs to know who I am. You're not 70 people anymore. You're a whole nation. You're over a million people. And now, all of this million people need to know that I am Yahweh. And all of Egypt needs to know that I am Yahweh. Um, so that's the plagues as, as signs. What are they pointing to? Um, another interesting thing in this, in this passage that I want to talk about is I think that there's something for us to learn about what God's delivering us from, delivering his people from, in the, in the character of Pharaoh. All right. Pharaoh is interesting. Pharaoh is basically a type of Satan or a type of sin or the world or, or whatever it is. Anything evil, anything opposed to God, anything anti-God, that is embodied by Pharaoh. All right. And that is the thing that God comes to triumph over. But it's really interesting through the course of the, the, dis, the display of Yahweh's signs and wonders, the, the different reactions Pharaoh has. Um, he goes from outright denial of Yahweh, basically scoffing. Well, who is Yahweh? I've never heard of him. Never heard of him, right? <laughs> I don't know him. I'm not going to obey him. I'm Pharaoh. I don't have time for this. It's very dismissive and rebellious. He said, and I'm not going to, I mean, why? Well, I'm not going to let my people go. And he's just laughing in their face. Um, but then he kind of gets annoyed Right? They turn the water into blood. And, okay, great. Nice. My magicians can do this. All right, let's, let's let you have your little fun in the sun. And he's kind of annoyed. He's like, okay, can we, can we go back now? Can we, can we switch this off now? 
Um, then the frogs come, and he actually, he actually, he's, he, he starts to sense his powerlessness, and he's, he kind of starts to plead with Moses and Aaron. And then in the middle plagues, he starts these negotiations, right? Moses and Aaron make the demands of God, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go, three days journey, so that they can worship me. And then he says, all right, well, okay, I'll let you go, but you can't go very far. You got to stay closer than you want. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. Another plague. <laughs> and then he says, all right, I'll let you go. Uh, only the men. The men can go. All right, everybody else is going to stay here. Kids, women, you can't take everyone. Because obviously, I mean, that, that keeps his thumb on them, right? Obviously, the men aren't just going to abandon all their women and children. They, that means they're going to come back, right? And then he says, all right, well, uh, okay, fine. You can take all your kids, but you've got to leave your animals. You've got to leave your livestock. And it's interesting, Moses' response to that is, well, we don't know how God wants us to sacrifice to him yet. So we've got to take everything just to be prepared for whatever. I don't know if he's going to ask us to kill a sheep or a goat or whatever. We've got to worship him in the way that he, he decides, which is a great heart to have when approaching God. Um, and so there's this negotiation. And then as it gets into the later and more intense plagues, uh, he has these moments of false repentance. Right? I mean, it sounds, you kind of start feeling bad for the guy. Like, <laughs> okay. But it, it's these, it, he's still not giving up. He's not, he's not submitting himself to God. He's not acknowledging God's supremacy over him. Uh, he's just, he has what, what I would call false repentance. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 27, he says, All right, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and, I, and my people are in the wrong. Well, it sounds good. And then um, he says, Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Um, and then it says, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again. He sinned yet again, it says, and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So then he has this false repentance, and then he begins to accuse. Right? He says, you have some evil purpose in mind. I don't know what you're up to, but I don't like it. Um, and then finally, he sort of admits defeat and lets them go. And then we know at the end of the story, he ends up recanting and pursuing them one last time in a fit of rage and then ends up uh, overcome by the sea. So I want to tie these thoughts together. Um, I mentioned last week that for us, you know, it's hard to identify with being in bondage with Israel uh, until we realize that the bondage that we're under is bondage to our own desires, right? And everything in our culture is, revolves around that, that ultimately you got to do you. Um, and so God has come into our lives and he has displayed who he is. Okay, and I think what we need to do is we need to look at this and say, how did, God, how did God reveal who he was to that people in bringing them out of Egypt, in bringing them out of bondage? 
And so what do we need to learn about this? Uh, so the question that I have, um, well, there's, there's, another, there's a lot of questions. Let me, let me try and tie, tie everything together. I have about 10 thoughts I want to say, and I don't know what order I want to say them in. I think the first thing is this. On, on Pharaoh's shifting attitude, um, we need to recognize, and, and even his hardening of heart, you know, Scripture says that we should exhort one another daily, lest any of us become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I think that applies perfectly to uh, this portrait we have of Pharaoh. When God is bringing us out of a bondage, it doesn't just go, boom, done. All right? There is our sin, or whatever it is that's holding us in bondage, will deny Yahweh, will get annoyed with Yahweh, will plead that Yahweh would stop pestering us with these things, Okay, we'll start negotiating. Well, how about this? How about I'll, I'll obey what you're saying in this way? Or how about I'll obey what you're saying in this way? Okay. We'll falsely repent. We'll begin to accuse God of evil motives. We'll finally admit defeat, but then it will recant in a fit of rage. This is, this is the, the way sin holds on to us. This is the way our, our independence holds on to us. When God comes and says, not your system, <laughs> my system. Let me bring you into this system. We're, I think we need to see ourselves both as the people here in bondage. But it's weird because what we're in bondage to is ourself. <laughs> so there's something to be said in the way that God deals with Pharaoh that we need to hear. The way that he deals, deals with our old man in those things in our lives that hold us in bondage. And there's also things that we need to hear about in the way that he deals with his people. All right? So, what he has said in the signs, both to Pharaoh and to his people, are that he reigns supreme over the things that they worship. Over the things that they worship. Now, it takes a little bit of work to apply this to ourselves, but once we do it, it's an amazingly fruitful thing. So think about, we get tripped up when we think about Old Testament. Well, why would they worship a frog? Why would they worship a snake? Well, what they were doing was looking at the world around them and trying to make sense of it. All right? So they began to worship the sun. Wow, the sun seems way more powerful than me. I could never, I could never take the sun out. Right? I would just get, I would get whooped. So I'm going to worship the sun, right? There's power in the sun. When the sun's not there, things don't go very well. So we're going to attribute power to the sun. We're going to attribute power to flies. Why? Because flies are able to, and I read this, this is pretty interesting. They sort of deified insects because insects were creators of life. There's a piece of dead flesh there. You leave it there for long enough, you turn it over, and there's maggots. There's life. How did that happen? Miraculous. The insects. We need to revere that process. We can't make that happen. Wow, how did they do that? Something about flies. Right? And the thing is that the process of, of being an idolater 
is one that we're all familiar with. Right? It's let's look at what makes sense to me, what really makes draws my attention out, what really causes me to go, oh wow, that's that's amazing. Whether it's a person or a natural process or whatever, we 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 give ourselves over to that thing. We admit its lordship over us. Wow, that is superior to us. Ooh, look at uh, look at LeBron James. He is just so cool. You know, how could I ever be that cool and athletic? I'm going to give him my energy and thought, right? That's idolatry. That's the same thing. Look at how those maggots turn a piece of dead meat into life. Whoa. Let's pour out admiration for that, right? So we do this. We have to make the jump. It's a big jump, right? It's a lot different for us, but it's absolutely a jump that we can make, right? It's still the same problem. It's still the same problem. We are looking at the world around us and whatever helps us in our quest <laughs> to make sense of the world and to actualize ourselves and to, to be fulfilled, whatever helps us, whatever we look up to, whatever we revere and admire, it's too bad that it's not nature anymore, right? It's this baser and baser things all the time. It would be great if some people were tempted to worship the sun because at least they'd be like interacting with nature, right? But now it's just things that have nothing to do with reality, right? You understand what I'm saying? They were looking at the world around them and go, wow, this is amazing. And rejecting the idea of the creator behind it. We do this all the time. We're in bondage to lust without realizing that there is a God who put desire within us and who has a way for us to comport ourselves as humans with that desire. We give ourselves over to food. We give ourselves over to pleasure. We give ourselves over, over to working hard and making money and all these things. And what we're doing is the same thing that the Egyptians were doing. And our, our master keeps driving us harder and harder after those things. God comes and he says, I'm bringing them out. And all of those things, all of that system begins to war against that process. And it's a messy process, right? When God brings you out of a system that's opposed to him, it's a very messy process. You don't like it. The system doesn't like it. And it's just bad all around. And God has to really come and kick butt. He has to come and say, I am triumphing over these things in an unmistakable way so that you would know who I am. So the thing is, we, we all have ideas about who God is, right? Everybody has an idea. We follow God, right? We all have an idea about who he is. And my question is, do we, as a people, and do we encourage other people who are seeking God, other people that we are sharing the life of God with, do we have... Uh, do we know the things that God has been screaming out for us to know about him? Like, do we, do we really give ourselves to know those things? Or do we just hang on to our own ideas about God? He has said, I'm doing these things so you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know. And my question is, do we take our ideas about God, are our, our ideas about God formed by those things? Or do we still have some vague notion of who God is? Um, a few of you have heard uh, 
neither me or someone else talk about the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. Right, this is, there was a, a sociologist, he did this extensive survey, and he has a whole book about it. He was trying to figure out what exactly is the general belief of Americans. Right? What do they really believe in? Not what do they align themselves with denominationally, but like what is it, the, what is it that they actually believe about God? And he came up with this, this it's really just a, a, a phrase, but he then spelled out kind of the, the chief elements of the creed. And this is like American younger people, you know, more about, around our age and maybe even younger. But here's the primary tenets of this moralistic therapeutic deism, which is sort of an overwrought phrase. Um, I like to just say the, the phrases cause, or the, uh, the beliefs because they, they make a little more sense to me. Um, Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. All right, I'm with you so far. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Right, that's one of the chief tenets. God wants people to be nice to each other. And none of these will sound like heresy to you. But also, none of them are really go all the way. The central goal of life, well, maybe this one sounds heretical, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. That's the central goal of life. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. All right? Number five, good people Go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die. And you won't find very many people in America who really disagree with any of that. <laughs> I mean, that's like kind of the, the majority. Now, obviously, there are, there are atheists and there are people who would take issue with that. But that's sort of the doesn't – that, doesn't that strike you as sort of a general – yeah, that's, that's kind of the, what, we, what we live with. That's, talking with general – I mean, mostly people who are in the church, that's kind of the life they live. Um, but I wanted to, I was thinking about what God is trying to tell us here in Exodus through these plagues and through these signs. And I was, and then that popped into my head and I was thinking, the problem is that we don't want to know about God, the things that he wants us to know about himself. We don't really want to know God in the way that he has gone to great lengths to be known by us. That's the problem. We don't know about God that from him are all things and that all of human life should be lived in the way that he has prescribed because it's the best way. We don't know that about God. He's revealed it over and over and over. He's shouted it out. We don't know about God that he has come to take us out of the toxic system that we're in we don't realize we're in a toxic system. We don't realize we're in bondage, but he has come to take us out of it because he desires to be our God and he desires for us to be his people. He says Israel's my firstborn son and he desires that. And so he has to come and, and war and 
send forth signs and wonders and outstretched arm against the things that hold us in bondage. And there is a war for our lives going on. And God is coming and waging war. And he's triumphing. We don't know about God that he has a place he wants to take us. That we have a possession. That he has a land that's, that's waiting for us. We don't know about God that he uh, has ways that he wants us to worship him. We don't know about God that he has absolute, absolutely has interest in every little aspect, every little area of our lives. And that's so strange to me because when you read scripture, you see God saying, this is what I want you to know about me. <laughs> and we don't want to know those things about God. And when he starts to try and show himself and reveal himself, we turn into Pharaoh. And we say, well, all right, well, I don't know. That's not, that's not, I don't know God like that. And he works on us and he works on us and we get to a place of, oh, okay, yeah, all right, he's, he's right, I'm wrong. But I still don't want to do it. I still don't want to fully submit to him. I still don't want to admit that he is the Lord and that he is the one and I'm not. I don't want to admit it. All right, fine, I admit it. No, I, no stop, stop, I don't. <laughs> That's what we do. Right? And God has come to say, this is who I am. You're not going to like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, I'm, and at the end of it, I'm going to bring you out of bondage. And you will be my people. Um. So that's my main thought. And, and the challenge is, do we, and I've, I've been saying all along as we've been getting into Exodus, that this is our story. Is it really our story? Is our God the one who comes to systematically dismantle every system of the world that's opposed to him? Because he does. We, we, we sort of get this ambivalence about the world. Right? Yeah, you know. Teaches on, oh, that's pretty fun. That's good, clean fun. God could be really, really ticked off at some of the things that we do, some of the things that, that we give time to. He could be, but we don't know because we, we don't know him that way. Right? The New Testament says what's exalted in the eyes of man is abomination to God. What's exalted in the eyes of man is abomination to God. If a lot of people really like it, God probably doesn't. If a lot of really worldly people like something, God probably has some issues with it. And he has come to deliver us from where those things hold us in bondage. Do do we want to know God like this? And he comes to make war against those things so that we would know who he is. All right? And so that's the question, and that's the, that's the challenge. Do, is this your story? Do you know God as one who wants to make a distinction between his people and the world? There is a difference. I'm drawing a line. The world does it one way and is corrupt. 
My people do it this way. And they have joy. I want to read one verse that I think makes a whole lot of sense after talking about these things. Titus 11. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's great. I mean, a lot of us just stop there. A lot of the, a lot of moralistic, therapeutic deism, or whatever you want to call it, it stops there. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. We're still talking about grace here. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God has appeared. He's shown Himself. This is who I am. I'm a savior and I'm a trainer of how to get out of the world that holds you in bondage and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age in the midst of this mess waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to, this is Exodus language, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now he's talking here to Titus. Paul is talking to Titus. And here's what he says after this. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Does this sound familiar? Go tell Pharaoh. Go show him what I'm about. He's not going to like it. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So do you know God in this way? I'll read it again. And actually, let's, let's just prepare and we'll come up to the table with this challenge. Because Jesus is all of these things. Right? He is the one. He is, he is the lamb who was sacrificed. He is the, the perfect son. Um, and it is into him, into his life, that we are being brought out of darkness. Right? We are, just as the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and were delivered out of Egypt, we are baptized, we are buried in baptism, we die to the old man, our sin is crushed under the waves, right? The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And the water washes over all of that and we emerge. Scripture says we are baptized into his body. When we are delivered... All of the judgment of God comes on the stuff that held us in bondage and it's buried and dead and we are raised into, not just, we're raised into the very life of Jesus. We emerge as part of his body, which is an amazing thing. So I want to acknowledge that as we come and let me read this verse and then allow this to be our, our kind of point of examination tonight. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So as we come to the table, let's come and receive the grace of God and all that means. The grace of God that saves you, the grace of God that causes the angel of death to pass over, but even more, the grace of God that trains you, the grace of God that teaches you, the grace of God that fills you with the hope of the reappearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a present age that's wicked and that's an abomination to God. Come and and be full of his body, his very body. And be purified for him as part of a people who are his very own possession and who are zealous for good works. That is it. What a great picture of life. What a great picture of the other side of the Red Sea, what God is aiming at. Now, sadly, we've got a long way to go in our our journey. Long way to go. But you see how God has burst onto the scene. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. Look how serious I am about this. (laughs) And we should know God for what he wants to be known for. Amen? And ultimately this is what he wants to be known for. That he, to reach this end, to reach his aim, sent his only son to be that one, to show us finally what it looks like to walk in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in a way that that pleases God. Amen? So let's come and be, let's be edified, right? This is a means of grace. As Wesley says, this is a means of grace. What does that mean? It's a channel of grace into your life. And we don't get weird, you know, we're not Catholic, but we do acknowledge that when you come to the table and when you receive the body and blood of Jesus, grace is given to you. To be the people that, we've, that he's called us to be. So let's come. I'm, 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 you can probably tell. I, I am really excited about who God is. And about who we are as his people. And I'm, I'm excited to have this meal together tonight. In light of this truth. Uh, and God is here and he's showing us who he is. In the way that he wants to. Amen.